I'm Loki Karuna, and this is Triloquy. Happy New Year. Sorry, not sorry, that I took a longer break than I had anticipated originally, but it felt good to focus on self, to focus on my partner, and to just be restful for a while. I hope that you got some rest over the winter holidays as well. Shout out to the returning listeners. The numbers are continuing to grow, which tells me that the movement is continuing to grow. I really, really appreciate y'all and all of the support that you give to this project. If this happens to be your very first time checking out the show, Triloquy is a podcast built to decolonize classical music. Each week I come here to the mic with some thoughts of my own, in addition to a conversation that I have with leaders and change makers throughout the field of so-called classical music and sometimes even the broader arts. Uh, and in celebration of the show's title, of course, I end each opus with a Triloquy, my true and unapologetically real thoughts for the week. For more information on Triloquy, to catch past opuses, and to donate to the project, go over to our website. It's T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. Since this show's start back in 2019, there are a few people who have always wanted on the show because their work ties in really well to the overall point of Triloquy, of this idea of decolonizing classical music. Well, among those folks is the legendary Laura Downs. I'm really thrilled to get to share a recent dialogue that I had with her in this week's opus. Among the things that we talk about uh, is a project that she took on called Rhapsody in Blue Reimagined. You'll hear all about that in the interview. Uh, but to get us started, I wanted to speak briefly on my evolving relationship with George Gershwin. Just in case you don't know, George Gershwin was a New York-based Jewish composer of the early 20th century who gained notoriety by platforming and showcasing black musical aesthetics in his compositions. Now, I think it's safe to say that his most famous work is called I Got Rhythm, and, the, and that main theme was allegedly stolen from William Grant Still, who's, of course, one of history's most significant black composers. Well, Gershwin also wrote uh, the opera Porgy and Bess, which, side note, he himself demanded only uh, to be performed by all black opera casts. I'm sure there'd be blackface all over the place if he didn't make that demand in his final will and testament. So I guess shout out to him for that. But anyway, I never liked the idea of celebrating Gershwin because my belief was that we should celebrate the black people and the black communities that made Gershwin possible. I'd make this opinion clear um, on live radio, uh, in the way that I programmed concerts and other things, and even in all of my speaking engagements and other media. I liked making this point that there were black people behind the legacy of Gershwin that we need to celebrate and not necessarily always censoring him. I guess I still feel that way to a degree, but I've grown to see Gershwin's legacy as something bigger than just a white person still in black music. In my, uh, I guess, renewed Bodhisattva view <laughs> from since these past few years of my taking on Buddhism, uh, Gershwin was making a case in some way, I think, for decolonizing classical music just in his own unique way. I think we have to remember that Gershwin was alive alongside some of the 20th century's other most famous composers, folks like Igor Stravinsky. Uh, we have Rachmaninoff, all these folks. He could have pushed the classical genre forward in a Eurocentric way like they were doing and some of his other contemporaries. But instead, Gershwin decided to celebrate America through the lens of the cultures and communities of the people who actually codified something unique in the world of musics from the uh, from America, from the so-called United States. I'm talking about black people, if, you, if you're not keeping up. Again, I won't argue that we shouldn't focus on the black folks that made Gershwin's legacy possible. That That's very important work. But we also can't argue that Gershwin didn't play a big role in expanding so-called classical 
classical music's general aesthetic in his own way, expanding it to include and for him center what the U.S. has unique, uniquely contributed to the world of music thanks to black culture and to black people. So Laura Downs, getting back to her, she's taken a step Further, by reimagining Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, by uh, integrating, for lack of a better word, the sounds of America as they've been expanded since Gershwin's day. So not just that um, Afro-American jazz aesthetic, but the many musical aesthetics that help define America in this 21st century. So Lara and I talk about this project. We talk about um, her life as a multidisciplinary um, artist and activist. And we even talk a little bit about uh, radio since Lara has been in that corner of the field as well for the past few years. Uh, so I'm really excited uh, and uh, really honored to get to go into my mind and challenge <laughs> my own feelings about uh, George Gershwin. Um, and to share a really great conversation with y'all. To get us into the conversation, I'd like to uh, share a sample from Lara's Rhapsody and Blue Reimagined. This performance of it features Lara Downs with the San Francisco Conservatory. Hope y'all enjoy this clip and hope you enjoy my conversation with Lara. Thanks again for tuning in. while there where I was interested in other things and I had a lot of fear about whether one was allowed to do those other things you know mm. I have this really strong memory the first time that I wrote something that was published and I thought oh but does this mean I'm a writer now because I can't be a writer <laughs> if I'm a pianist um, and just having all of these things sort of seen and embraced and supported and appreciated makes me realize that we are all very multifaceted and it's it, made me very very dedicated you know when i talk to younger musicians about like mm -hmm. be you like do all do all of you um it's a for me it's a much healthier happier more fun way to live i love that i love that and of course since 2020 we've all been integrating uh ideas of dei uh in into our work i wonder um what you would say the landscape from your perspective looks like in that regard, especially considering the women and the women of color uh, composers you've been platforming uh, for many years now. Mm -hmm. Well, look, I think you would say the same. Um, we didn't start in 2020. Okay. <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time. I don't know that I was calling it DEI. I was calling it, um, I was calling it learning and yeah. doing and sharing and, you know, just like, rejoicing in all of this beautiful work that I was finding and um and and it was challenging in the obvious ways but but maybe not in some ways that people would assume I I haven't encountered ever you know a lot of pushback about this I've along the way of course you know there were people um at major record labels who 
didn't, who weren't convinced of, you know, the value of a full album of music by Florence Price, just for example, but Mm -hmm. nothing really ever slammed, you know, there were no slammed doors. Um, So I guess for me, the last few years have been gratifying in the sense that there's a wider embrace, frustrating in the sense that this story doesn't get told well often, um, worrisome in that maybe it's been everything that's been done has been done quite fast mm. and sometimes not so thoughtfully. And so I am concerned that harm can be done. Um, but I've also taken it upon myself to be part of that effort. So if I think sure. that a story is not being told right, I'm just going to jump in and try to help fix that because this is new to the, to most of our industry. So I'm trying to just be patient and supportive and collaborative. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of work to do. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, you know, uh, we'll, we'll probably get a little bit into this a little later when we talk about the Gershwin, but one of the uh, things that I really appreciated about some of your previous work is the America-ness that you always tried to highlight and really telling that American story. It seems like that is, uh, uh, from my perspective anyway, where could be uh, where it could be a really great place to go. You know, there are many mm-hmm. differences that we can highlight and, and those sorts of things. But I think really showcasing the fact that to be American, especially musically, is to be so many things. I mean, what better bridge is there to build? Right, exactly. So maybe this is a question of definition. You know, how do we define American music? Who do we call a composer? It's language as much as it is anything else. And you're right. I mean, that's always been my focus and it's always been my belief. And whoa, that belief gets stronger and stronger, the more of a mess (laughs) we find ourselves living in. Because, you know, I find myself digging deeper and deeper into the potential of this music to tell that story and to kind of bring people into that story and into a place of understanding and possibly peace and joy and all those things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just as a little background, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, your trajectory, the transition from amateur to professional and what's uh, what it's looked like for you so far. Yeah, I saw that question on your sheet. I don't know that I had that. I don't know that I was ever an amateur. I was a little tiny child taking piano lessons. And then I was playing, you know, by the time I was seven, I think my first TV appearance was at seven. Not, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like you're thinking it wasn't some, you know, sort of exploited child prodigy situation. I just was always playing publicly for people. So I don't know that there's any difference except that you get paid more, you know, as as your career grows. But the idea that music was something to share and something to share actually quite intentionally goes all the way back for me. Um, I think the only crisis of faith that I ever had about it was in those last years of study, you know, where everybody gets into that tunnel and you're just like practicing all day Mm -hmm. and kind of the light at the end of that tunnel is very murky. Like, why am I doing this? Where is it that we're hurtling along towards? So I had to, define that for myself and um it was a like it was a hard process in terms of just you know you find yourself out of school and having to figure out a lot of things and having to hustle a lot but i i don't call it painful it was actually very um it it was enlightening and it introduced me to myself yeah yeah how do you stay tapped into that joy 
when it comes to you know playing the piano not as a job or something to you know a project but just you know doing it because you love it how do you hang on to that well i think there are different elements to that i think i connected with that part of it that joy of just playing the piano just being in the music actually that was weirdly an opportunity during the pandemic when mm-hmm. i wasn't always connecting this with you know communication to others i mean I, I really will say honestly that that was maybe the first time in years that i just sat with the music and let myself play whatever i wanted and just you know really just be happy in it and and, and escape into it necessary escape right but as far as connecting with the joy of um, making music i think for me i don't I mean, I don't call it playing the piano anymore. I call it, you know, something much bigger. Like, I think I'm always having this bigger mission around that. Um, And I don't mean to say that I'm saving the world. I just know that every time that I do sit down at the piano on a stage, there is a big story I want to tell with whatever I'm playing. And there's something that I want to happen in that room. And you can call it, you know, what do you call it? You call it... mm, communicating and teaching and inviting and that whole thing there's a lot of mission behind my music making which keeps me really energized and it's it's always expanding too so there's always more more that i want to do yeah i I love what you say about mission a lot of the uh, young composers that i meet and work with these days are really working hard to tie their work their artistry to mission to something broader and oftentimes it's it's interesting you know with tiktok and youtubers making lots of money this idea of being in the public eye as a part of that mission is something that i'm noticing more and more certainly more than when i was in school and we were just talking about going into orchestras and that being the end of the story you know as as someone who's been in the public eye for so long i wonder if you could speak to some of the challenges uh, or or maybe some of the benefits that you've uh, experienced being someone who gets to do this work front and center, literally and figuratively. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for that. I work and have worked so hard and yet you're right. I get to do it. And I think that's part of what keeps me so connected to this mission because a lot of this mission is about lineage. And the part of our lineage as artists of color that has been erased and you know not appreciated. And I am so intensely aware of everybody who went before me who did not get to do this the way I get to do it. Mm-hmm. And so by sharing those stories and by shining a light on the music and also just clarifying the truths about where I come from, um, I think that's my way of expressing my thanks. You know, every time I... I'm aware of the barriers that were put in front of people, even the people that we think of as, you know, having been the few who did make it, who were, you know, but we know that we know everything that that entailed. And, you know, I I have none of it. And I, I have exactly those people to thank for that. And, not only do you get to tell your story musically in front of audiences, you know, for a while now, you've been behind the microphone on radio, really using your literal voice to tell these stories. Mm-hmm. How has that impacted your perspective on this work? I know for me, when I started working in radio, that's when the breadth of the repertoire really opened up to me. It's one thing to be in an orchestra. It's another thing to have stacks and stacks and stacks of CDs by composers who, for me, at that time, I had never heard of. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny to say this now with the Bernstein movie having just dropped on Netflix. <laughs> so right. I mean, I think it's a whole <laughs> other, you know, this is a whole other wave of um, familiarity with his, well, with, you know, that, that version of his story, but the part of um, his story that has always been so inspiring to me is that he figured out so early on that there is a huge audience outside of the concert hall. And for me, that's essential. You know, I, I am so aware of the value of every single person who does go to the time and effort and you know expense of coming into the concert hall. But there's so many people out there. And I am convinced that radio and yes, streaming, but um, particularly radio is our avenue to meet those people and to um, educate them and invite them and grow the community around the music. So I don't think I've told you this, but when they reached out from Classical California, from KDSC, KUSC about this radio show, which was in 2020, in the early part of the pandemic. And he's, you know, he said, is this something you'd ever think about doing? And that, that, that's the first thing I said was, well, yeah, because I want to be Leonard Bernstein when I grow up. (laughs) (laughs) Meaning that, meaning I want to be able to have that kind of a bandwidth for communication because it's so powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. How do you deal with the, uh, I don't know, not so glamorous parts of radio? I'm I'm thinking specifically about listener emails. I know that they can sometimes (laughs) not be so celebratory. How have you, uh, have you traversed those aspects of the job? (laughs) I think those get screened for me for one thing. I mean, I'm, (laughs) I'm totally blown away. This is something I'm still trying to understand there is a lot of communication from radio listeners and that tells me something about their relationship with this medium too. Exactly. Because I do not get letters after I play concerts. I get letters about, you know, the music that I'm sharing and and the way that I'm sharing it. And I mean, I see a a so much positive, beautiful, you know, beautiful um, thoughts that, that get shared. And I, I just, I'm amazed at the, I think there's an intimacy there that people feel when they're connecting with what they're hearing on the radio. So that's very special. So I wonder if there's any crossover there when you're thinking about projects, what you want to bring to the stage is what you understand about the broader classical music listening audience brought into that space, even considering the fact that many of them may never go into a concert hall. Yeah. And for, for a lot of years, I've been pretty intentional about connecting my on stage projects with my recorded project. Mm-hmm. I think that most everything that I'm playing in a room, I also want to play on. Uh, do we say on disc anymore? <laughs> it, <Yeah>. it works <laughs> well enough. Um, I want it to be available outside of the hall. So that's also why I record so much. And, you know, my motivation, a lot of my motivation in starting the Rising Sun label, mm-hmm. which is what that was in 2020, also um, a label which is devoted to first recordings, mostly first recordings of music by Black composers was because of my awareness of um, what had been available in recorded form and therefore played on classical radio and therefore defining classical music. Right. Uh, and so by, you know, by producing all of these recordings, as you know, like that's an exponential shift from two to 22 is <laughs> a lot <laughs> of yeah. difference. Yeah. And, um, and that I will say that that's one thing that um, get noticed and 
and appreciated and commented on a lot in, in listener feedback is the growing diversity, diversity in all senses, you know, just the, the shift towards a more, a, a broader um, definition of, of what we're calling classical music and new voices and also new stories that have a connection to the lived experience of the listener. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about those lived experiences, I think a lot of those come out uh, in your Rhapsody in Blue reimagined. I want to talk a little bit um, about that. But first and foremost, uh, as a bassoonist, I don't really have the relationship with Gershwin's original Rhapsody in Blue that a pianist can have. I wonder, from your perspective, why is this such an important part of the repertoire for pianists? Well, it's fun to play. <laughs> okay. It's fun to hear. <laughs> I mean, it's, um, so for me, I, I think my connection with the Rhapsody goes back to being, I don't know, in my tweens, uh, at which point I was already studying in Europe. And what, didn't we all hear that music first as like the soundtrack to figure skating or something, right? Yeah, <laughs> maybe like, the oh, second Fantasia. The yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I think, I, I really do think most people come to that piece in some sort of commercial application of it. Okay. So the tunes in your head, and then as a pianist, you're like, oh, I, I think I could play this now. And in my case, asking permission from my teachers in Vienna was <laughs> met with, you talk about the door slamming, they were like, you know, this is, this is not serious music. We have other things to do. So I think I probably just, you know, played it on my own for fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then, honestly, my self-education in the history of American music has given me a different relationship to Gershwin's music, his origins, his inspirations, all of that. So while I love to play the Grofet version from 1924 with orchestras, as we came up to this centennial, I really started to think about what centennials tend to mean in classical music, which is just like, let's mm. play the thing to death until nobody wants to hear it anymore next season. Right. right and now right. it's done and now it goes in the museum. And I don't want that to happen. And knowing what I know about American music in the early 20th century and all the things that are coming together and all the people who are writing and all the you know sounds that are being bored, I'm really listening to what Gershwin is hearing and what he's trying to translate. And it just really seemed to me to be time to go back to that original vision of his for what he called the musical kaleidoscope of america and look at it through right. the lens of today the very different thing and you know give somebody else a shot at orchestrating it with a totally new language yeah i'm gonna get to that idea of a musical kaleidoscope but i just have to rewind a little bit you know it's so funny to me to hear you talk about your european teachers looking down on this very american music i mean what what did that mean for you in the moment and surely there must have been other american musics that you you know that could be brought to the front other than gershwin is was it an entire dismissal of the american repertoire this jazz aesthetic or or what yeah, it really was. I think there was an equal, possibly a lesser disdain of, you know, the Americana via Copeland or somebody like that. But honestly, they, I mean, these were much older people and it was a generation um, that was mostly looking backwards, right? Mm -hmm. um, where that would come up, you know, whenever there was a competition that you were going to do and you had to play something written past whatever it was, 1920 or 50 or something, mm -hmm. but there was always this insistence on, you know, a, a European sort of a, an academic European composer. 
And so anything that I wanted to play from that body of work, from that sort of that American sound, that really was not being embraced. Yeah. And I I just think that if there was a way for us to shift the conservatory teaching, even music education, where we play these orchestral, these so-called classical instruments in every way that they could be played, that really benefits the student, that benefits community, that benefits the industry. I mean, I, I feel mm-hmm. like if we could all be that curious, no one would lose. Everyone would win. Yeah. I have to say that's one of the most hopeful things that I see. You know, I really think that there's a huge and, and fast shift happening now in the conservatory environment and the way that we're trying to raise and nurture young musicians and the openness. I think that, you know, people who are teaching young musicians are being willing to know what they know to know what they know and to learn what they don't know and even to let their students take the lead in defining what music is today and what it's going to be yeah. which is a much more healthier much healthier thing than you know saying well in my day in my day and speaking of people's day, so back again to this idea of this musical kaleidoscope of America. Gershwin certainly had a uh, a really great view of America and its diversity. I mean, we could talk about Porgy and Bess and and all of those things, but I think it's safe to say that today's America is even more colorful in some ways. So I wonder if your Rhapsody in Blue reimagined is speaking to that or or engaging that idea at all. Yeah, that's really the whole point. Um, so, I mean, I started with that understanding that, of course, a hundred years later, given all, all the waves of immigration and migration, you know, the sound of this country, the culture of this country, the look and you know everything in this country, it's again exponentially transformed. Um, and Gershwin's kaleidoscope, I think that comes at such an interesting time, the 1920s. There's this fast movement in. Um, like America's really redefining itself right then, mm-hmm. you know, waves of immigration from Europe have been sort of stacking up black people coming up from the South for the first time. So he's living in this microcosm of change and he's feeling that so intensely. And he's trying, that's what he's trying to capture. This guy who grows up with the sound of the Yiddish theater and vaudeville and classical music and jazz and jazz is new and jazz is thrilling. And so he's trying to capture that in his rhapsody and Latin music. There's like these you mm-hmm. know Latin influences in the rhapsody, but as I said, it's all new and he's just sort of capturing it the best way that he knows how. So the original intent was yes, to, to reflect all the ways in which the kaleidoscope has changed. Not all, I shouldn't say that. Try to <laughs> try sure. to capture some of the ways <laughs> yeah, in which yeah. the kaleidoscope has expanded. But the amazing thing was that when I started to research that time, because I really wanted to understand more about the timelines of immigration through these last 100 years. And what I learned was that in that same year, in 1924, so in February, he writes this piece and he's celebrating the kaleidoscope and the melting pot. And in May, they pass this legislation called the Johnson Reed Act that shuts down Ellis Island. It's super fascist. It's completely, you know, yes. It's meant to preserve, you know, the homogeneous blood of, uh, I mean, it's it's shocking. It's shocking both in in its shockingness and how it reflects some of the things that we are experiencing a hundred years later. Of course. So now I'm thinking about Gershwin, you know, writing this piece and not living under a rock and seeing the turn that's 
happening in the country. So why is he embracing the melting pot? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I don't think this is just fun. I think that this is also making work in a time of that that seems dangerous. That seems you know to be erasing you, to be erasing you, Gershwin, as an American, a first generation American, whose inspirations are coming from the diversity from the melting pot. So there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack, but that's, that was our inspiration was really to try to pay tribute to that vision and expand it and kind of let it be everything that it can be. Wow. Wow. So when you decided, you know, that this needed to be born, that this, this needed to be performed. I wonder if you could talk about some of the, the major points, like where was there, any uh, conversation with the estate? Were there legal things to deal with? Were you involved with the selection of the various collaborators? I wonder if you'll talk a little bit about the development aspects of this. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. So pretty much at the same time that I had this idea, I picked up the phone and I called the one person who I wanted to work with, um, who's this composer named Edmar Colon, who I had met about a year prior. We had both been involved in a concert with the Boston Pops and Edmar had done this gorgeous arrangement of Caravan by Duke Ellington, Mm. which he had taken back to the Puerto Rican roots of that piece because it was co-written by a Puerto Rican composer. And it was just a really beautiful celebration of roots. And again, this idea of kind of taking the intent of a composer whose language was different than the inspiration Mm -hmm. and blending those two things. So I, I mean, I knew that I wanted to do this with Edmar. So I called him and we just had this epic phone conversation. Um, A few of the starting points, I think, had to do with really what was happening in 1924. So as I said, Edmar Edmar is born and raised in Puerto Rico, came here. So his his world is really uh, sort of that Afro-Caribbean language. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I learned when I was doing my 1924 research, this is pretty interesting. So they shut down immigration from Asia completely. Southern and Eastern Europe completely. You could come in very freely if you were from Great Britain, because everybody in Great Britain is white, right? Mm-hmm. Except they forgot about the British West Indies. So there's this huge, <laughs> inf- <laughs> there's this huge influx of people from all the islands coming in. And I had always known that that in the 20s and 30s, there were all these people from the Caribbean coming in, and like mm-hmm. you know the the makeup of Harlem totally changed. But that's why. Um, and then I I happened to like look at the little that I know about my my fam- my ancestry and it turned out that my my grandfather came from Harlem that year. Hmm. So that presence, that that taking the jazz sort of backwards, you know, that embrace of the Afro Caribbean element and then really all the way back to Africa, there are batad drums in this score. That was that was really important in terms of taking all those rhythms that Gershwin notates and you know they're referring to something else right course, it's not just like dubba, 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 dubba. what is that but what is it really um so filling in um really broadly with percussion and then the big idea is that the piece is, is meant to be site specific so wherever it goes we want it to really reflect local traditions and histories so the first performance was in san francisco and we had an ensemble of traditional Chinese instruments because that mm-hmm. story is so important to California and the Bay Area. Um, yeah. And then as it travels around, we'll be able to include local musicians with the local musical history. You know, twice now, this um, immigration ban of 1924 has come up. And, you know, it's interesting to me because 
uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of my efforts, especially in radio, have been centered around helping people understand that this music has a connection to the world. And sometimes those connections are political. Sometimes those connections are socioeconomic. Uh, is that a uh, how important is that context to this piece of music? Is that something that should be a part of a pre-concert talk, for example, as this is continued to to be performed. How how relevant is understanding that history, and especially how that history has been repeating itself to what this piece of music is? Yeah. So you know, I, I this is something I'm always pondering. How much do we let the music speak for itself? How much do we guide listeners through the music? I think for me both things need to coexist. I really do want this story to be crystal clear. And so, you know, yeah. I write really good program notes and on the recording that's coming out, I recorded, I think it's like seven minutes of, you know, an essay that I wrote about this because I think there's just so much real and immediate um, meaning that connects the now and the then. I mean, that's the one thing that I, I just, it just hit me so hard when I was, learning all this because we here in in 2024 you know I, I i think we all have this feeling that we're living these quote-unquote unprecedented times in this country you know that there's this division and then this push back and i look at the 1920s which was this time of so much progress so much forward motion and and this is what happens immediately yeah. there's pushback and i think it's healthy for us to know that and mm -hmm. it's healthy for us to know that this iconic piece that we just think of as figure skating and United Airlines and, you know, fun, right. that it came from a time like this. And that gives us courage in our own time to embrace joy and to create beauty and to like keep pushing against the pushback. Um, so I, I, I feel that both things, I will tell you that at the first performance in San Francisco, I didn't talk to anyone in, in the audience who didn't say that they had been moved to tears, which wow. is extraordinary. And there were moments I was looking at some photos from the dress rehearsal and I was in tears. There was <laughs> something so incredibly moving. And it, this is a young audience, right? It's a student, uh, a young orchestra, student orchestra. Um, and I do remember sitting, you know, at the piano and kind of listening to all of this come together and watching the faces around me, black and brown kids on the stage and, the idea to take this piece and to have kind of the courage to reconsider it and let it come into our time. I don't know. There was a lot of emotion. And I, I think it's just because we all have our stories of migration, of um, struggle, everyone. And yeah. to acknowledge that and to weave it into something that is so familiar and so beloved, I think it's powerful. When we talk about pushback and i mean you mentioned you know bringing this piece of music to today i think it's important to acknowledge that there are many people who are just challenged by gershwin a non-black composer who you know took black music and did what he did with it you know i'm I, I have to admit that i was long one of those people i don't think i'm angry at gershwin in the way i was when i was 23 years old you know but uh <laughs> uh but 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 i wonder if you could you know, speak to that. What do you what do you say to those folks who just kind of have a a challenge with Gershwin Gershwin's philosophically as again this non black composer commodifying many people would use that word this black music. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know where I stand on this. 
<laughs> and I think that I look at our community of musicians and then I look at the outside forces around what we do. And I look at that same time period when black and white musicians were touring together, recording together, making music together. Yeah, some of them had to use the back door, but that wasn't that wasn't internal, that was external. I think that what musicians do is listen to each other. And when we say take, I think I like to use the word learn instead. And I think also this thing of being in the moment, like being present in your time. So if you're Gershwin and you're living in 1924 in New York, you can't help but hear this music that is new. And it's new for so many reasons, right? It's, it's also new for external reasons. It's new because it's being born in the moment. It's new mm -hmm. because people are coming together in that city for the first time and sharing the music that they're bringing with me. So unless you want to close your ears to that, it's going to fill your ears. And he was, I think, intentionally seeking it out. I think, you know, he's going to shuffle along three years earlier. He's he's wanting to absorb all this. I think we have the same impetus today. We are fortunate that we don't, well, we have been fortunate. <laughs> Who knows where things are going? But, you know, we um, are able to connect those dots in a public way without having to deal with the kind of barriers that musicians did in that time. I'm really, I really have to have gratitude for that kind of listening and sure. sharing and in interchange. I think that's what we need more of in every sector. And I think it was 2021 or 2022. I actually did some work, some DEI work with the San Francisco Symphony. And one of the exercises that um, I asked people to do was to think about what uh, is your image of a diverse space? Where do you go where you really see the diversity that, you know, uh, that is the Bay Area? So, of course, you know, some people say the grocery store, or maybe a, a sports match. It seems to me that uh, reimagining a piece like this is, you know, a piece that will keep the tried and true folks around, can invite people who never, you know, would have thought about it. And everyone in between, it, it seems like, you know, repertoire, we, we spend so much time thinking about, okay, how do we get a different audience, younger audience, diverse audience? It seems like repertoire really is what we need to talk about. I think you're right. And I think it's also, how do we present the repertoire and where, you know, and I've realized that as much as I want to play, as much as I want to celebrate this music that I have uncovered and that I love, as much as I am so thrilled to play. For example, let's go back to Florence Price to play her concerto. Yeah. I'm not doing everything that I need to do if I only play it for the subscription audience in the hall. Mm -hmm. So I'm always pushing outside of that hall, whether it's again on the radio or, you know, by making a recording or by kind of insisting, you know, no, we're going down the block <laughs> to the middle school now. Um, I think that we all, all of us who want to see this change, who are stewarding the music, who are believing in music, like we all have to push ourselves to our utmost. Cause you asked me, you know, how do I feel about this recent embrace of diversity in the field? Right. It doesn't happen by itself. And there are so many layers on which it needs to happen. So if we're working, you know, overtime for a while, that's okay. Again, that's just payback for, you know, everybody who never had the opportunity. Yeah. So how can folks check out Rhapsody in Blue Reimagined? Yeah, so the recording comes out, um, I think, the very first weekend of February. Oh, nice. We released um, an early single. <laughs> it's funny, when we were working on when Edmund 
when Edmar and I were working on the arrangement, we were sitting, we were just going through the score. Oh, and I need to answer your question about rights and the estate. Oh, right. And yeah, all yeah. That. Oh, yeah, please. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, because that's important because what we were working from was just Gershwin's original piano version, which is in public domain as of now. Mm. Um, the Grofet orchestration is not. So we weren't working with that at all. We were really just starting again with the source. So we got to the beautiful E major slow section and you know, I was just playing at the piano and Ed Martha, like, you know, that always reminds me of the the Twiseth etude of Chopin. Oh, <laughs> then we were wow. laughing. We were like, okay. oh, here's Gershwin stealing from Chopin. <laughs> and then we ended up making this kind of mashup of those two pieces. It's called Study in Blue. It's really beautiful. That's out now. That's out, um, an Apple exclusive. And yeah, and then the Gershwin comes in February in advance of the centennial, which is Lincoln's birthday, February 12th. And um, I think the best way for everybody to stay connected is just to follow me on my Instagram and my <laughs> everything else because I'm always talking about it. You can't escape it. <laughs> good, good. Well, congratulations on a really uh, phenomenal uh, piece of work, something that I think really uh, covers a lot of the bases. You know, we talk about DEI, we talk about uh, getting people uh, broadening their musical palettes, you know, community building. It's 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 all there. Where I wanted to close, I wanted to circle back to radio. You know, uh, we uh, we tend to center many conversations around performers, especially when we get into conferences and panel discussions. And I think that's that's great. That's a, a very important thing to do. But the broadcasters, we're we're here as well. I wonder if you could uh, speak to your perspective on our role in this continued evolution of classical music. Oh, I think it's the biggest job. I really do. I talk a lot about um, you know what I referred to earlier, the the accidental listener, you know, the person who doesn't know that they like or love or are interested in this art form how would you know that if you haven't already sort of drunk the kool-aid but you know there's so many people out there you could be in the back of a car or you could be passing by you know an open window or you could whatever you you have these opportunities to intersect for a moment and then maybe that moment lasts so those the music that we're playing on air and you know, the voices that were wrapping the music in, the stories that we're telling. Again, I just, I think it's an incredibly powerful force. I also think um, the more that we get directed, you know, in everything from what you're buying on Amazon and then Amazon tells you what you should buy and the streaming services do the same. I think that there's this democracy and this, this um, wide range that we can create on the radio that uh, just allows allows a lot of space for personal imagination and um, a, a really broad invitation. bit more there from Rhapsody in Blue Reimagined. Shout out to Laura Downs for her incredible work and for joining me here on Triloquy to kick off 2024. I have a link uh, to the website where you can learn more and listen more to that uh, Rhapsody in Blue Reimagined in the description of this opus. 
Okay, so I have a very brief triloquy to share to wrap us up this week. Time off from work gives me a lot of space to chant. It gives me uh, time to think and explore my mind a little bit more. And it gives me time to understand what my next step should be toward decolonizing classical music and moreover, decolonizing Western society. Something that I've been having to say out loud to folks uh, a lot lately, especially, especially as I climb the ropes of professionalism and all those things. That's another conversation. But what, what I make clear is that my center pin is decolonization. It's black equity. You know, it's it's the future. So no matter what I do, that's really what I'm centered on. So I, I like to have time to really explore how I can expand of that work a bit more. That's how I got from an orchestral bassoonist to radio. That's how I got from radio to podcasting, from radio and podcasting to arts admin. So I feel like I'm, I'm always evolving. So I've been uh, spending some time or I spent time over break thinking about that. Well, over this past winter break, um, I spent a bit of time really focusing in on my relationship with work, asking myself if I'm happy, if I think I'm maintaining a relationship uh, with the orchestral sector that's healthy for me, um, and if it's all in line with my continually evolving values. I have to be perfectly honest and say that I want to draw my circle wider in 2024, beyond the specificity of uh, some of the work that I do. I think about uh, what the journey has looked like so far, for example, you know, learning to sing in church and how that led to learning to play the bassoon and dedicating the first decade of my career to that, all the way to moving to New York City in 2023 to be a part of this systems of change. And that word systems. Anyway, the journey has been great. But the journey um, has been a little niche, I'm beginning to understand. When I meet people here in New York and tell them the work that I do, the reaction is always really interesting. I'm hearing a lot of things like, wow, that's so perfect for you, or that's so specific. You have such a focused mission. Um, and when I think about the specificity that these people are identifying, I can't help but to consider the folks I'm missing through that specificity or the experiences for myself that I might be missing through that specificity. I want to um, shout out Lady Jess real quick. She's a part of the Triloquy family um, and a renowned violinist who's played with Beyonce and all types of folks uh, in, in her career. Dell and I went and watched her perform at the Shabazz Center here in Washington Heights. It's the, uh, if you don't know, uh, the Shabazz Center is a memorial to the late El Haj Malik El Shabazz, more widely known, of course, as Malcolm X. Uh, so the relevancy that Lady Jess brought into that space of people who don't know and probably don't care about classical music all that much, was extremely moving. It was great for me to see her really bridge that gap. She was able to connect with uh, those folks in a way that the vast majority of classically trained musicians out here could never, but people of color are not. They could never connect the dots between a very colonial musical tradition, at the very least one that's viewed that way, and an audience of conscious Black thinkers. That takes a very specific person going back to that idea of specificity meeting a, a, a more uh, a more uh, broad audience and a, and a more broad mission. I, you know, no, not to brag or boast, I count myself as someone who can connect those dots between, you know, classical music and black conscious thinking and those sorts of things. But I only get to do it as a novelty these days. The majority of my nine to five work is geared toward fixing, quote unquote, the existing orchestral industry by way of equity, by way of diversity. So it's not pointed at marginalized communities, it's pointed at the predominantly white industry that 
we're trying to fix or we're or we're trying to evolve by way of black folks. So the more I sat around and thought about this over winter break, the more I thought about the commodification of black cultures and black musics for non-black people, a lot like what Gershwin did, right? Moreover, when we're training kids, and I use that word training intentionally, we are opening or expanding their minds. We're training them on how to operate within colonial white supremacist cultures for their so-called success when at the end of the day, that success is only dependent on white acceptability, certainly in the field of orchestral music and broader classical music. Now, I'm still developing the actions that I see for myself behind these thoughts and, and behind this way of thinking. But what I can say and what I wanted to share with y'all here is that I'm seeking a key tenet of my Buddhist practice is to always have a seeking spirit. The journey doesn't end until you die. And we have an obligation, I believe, to always move forward toward building the societies that we think are best for the most people. There's always work to be done internally, which, of course, manifests externally. And that's that's what I'm doing. I'll acknowledge uh, that my feelings are always evolving and that my current feelings on this issue may not always be my feelings. But right now, I don't see orchestras as a part of our future. What are we really teaching our kids when we put an instrument in their hands and tell them that if they work hard enough, they too can be lucky enough to have a career that centers not just whiteness, but European cultural whiteness? What are we really doing when we build programs that give a leg up, quote unquote, to people from historically marginalized and contemporarily marginalized communities into professional spaces that don't allow them to bring their entire selves into that work? Are we not agents of the very systems that we allege to want to dismantle when we create ways for the system to be perpetuated by way of our continued participation in it? I'm seeking. I want to figure out where I really belong and how I can really answer those questions. And I want to professionally exist in a way that doesn't require me to leave my values at the door for the sake of paying my rent. There are so many things that I don't say, even here on this show. And if you're a person of color, I'm sure you have a similar experience of foregrounding financial safety over your values. I will acknowledge that I have the privilege of having a lot of ears, having each and every one of yours ears. And with that privilege comes, you know, <laughs> certain challenges. I, I can't engage, for example, the conversation of Israeli uh, Israel and Palestine in the way that I would like for the sake of my job. And I think that's a problem. Now, I'm not judging anyone because that's where I am right now. I'm not judging you for, you know, having to hold your tongue on certain things for the sake of your job, just like I'm not judging myself. But it's not where we have to be. It's not where you have to be. It's not where I have to be. My 2024 resolution is to get closer to being free. And I hope that I can continue to inspire thought around this as it relates to the field of so-called classical music and even beyond so-called classical music, because we talk all the time about how music informs society. Music is good for you. People who study music uh, do better in math and science and all of those things. So I think the, the work of decolonizing and dismantling some of the white supremacist structures of so-called classical music can also have similar reverberations in our society and other fields um, and, and, uh, and, and throughout all communities. That's what I'm trying to figure out. Again, seeking spirit. And I hope that you'll do some seeking as well to see if you have some ideas um, and answers to some of those questions and quandaries that I've put forward. Thanks as always for being an integral part of this show and an integral part of this movement. You know, in Buddhism, we say that the historical Buddha, uh, Shakyamuni, he isn't significant because he spoke. He's significant because he was heard. Thank you for hearing me. Talk to y'all again soon. Peace.